This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So again, good morning, and uh, good morning to everyone online as well. And I, uh, I'm giving a talk about repentance, and I feel like I need to repent right away for two things. One is, I was banging on the door this morning, not realizing people were already, uh, so many people were already sitting, but we, we couldn't get the door open. So I apologize. Uh, this, is a, this is repentance that takes a form. I'm going to talk about formless repentance in this talk. This is a form. I'm sorry <laughs> that we, I was out there not realizing that I was banging away there. And the other is, I forgot to ask us to introduce ourselves. So if I ever forget, someone can just say, shall we do names? <laughs> Sometimes in the rush of things to remember, I, uh, I just, you know, lose track of that. So you can assign an appropriate penance. <laughs> So uh, I was thinking about what to talk about today, and um, I realized, you know, every morning, not everyone's here in the morning, obviously, but every morning during our weekly schedule, when we we sit every morning Tuesday to Friday at 6 a.m., and um, it's a practice, it's a a form (laughs) that um, in many temples anyway, not all, but in many, many temples in our lineage, uh, after sitting one or two periods of zazen, for us it's two, we do nine prostrations, nine floor bows, and then we chant together in unison what is usually called the repentance verse. And in our translation, this is what it says. It says, All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Right? And we chant this, so it's like, all my ancient twisted karma. You know, it's very, right, <laughs> has, a, has some feeling to it. And um, I think this is done because during practice period, when we are strengthening our commitment to formal practice with others, right, together, You know, it seems appropriate that calling up our karma and avowing it, right? A vow is one of those kind of archaic words, but it's a way of saying confessing and owning it, right? Taking responsibility for it. That feels like the thing to do. And so we chant those uh, repentance verses, those repentance lines three times. And then, right after that, we take refuge. We take refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And I think many of you know these are the three jewels or the triple treasure of Buddhism shared by all Buddhists. Buddha, the the teacher, and our own enlightened nature. More to say about that in a minute. Dharma, which is the teaching, but also all phenomena, reality. And Sangha, which is the community of practitioners, but more widely understood, it is all beings, right? So that's the triple treasure. And when we take refuge, we bow with each refuge. There's a big bell, bong, and then we bow together. And then we go on to chant a sutra, as we usually do, and we close with three more bows. So it's a sort of solemn uh, start. The first things that many of us say in the morning are these refuges and repentances. So solemn, and for me, over the years of doing this, there's also something liberating about owning our karma out loud (laughs) in the company of others, right? Um, Karma is deliberate, is created by deliberate action, right? It is the results which we can't always know and sometimes play out far beyond our ability to understand or see beyond our lifetimes. And sometimes karma begins even before our individual lifetimes, but it's deliberate, intentional action. And as the verse says, that action is taking, takes place in body, speech, and mind. Right? Body, speech, and mind. 
So a deliberate thought, a thought that you nourish and, and strengthen can create karma, good or bad. And, you know, this practice period, now we're three weeks in, as we have become accustomed to saying these words and taking refuge, I feel like the group is gaining some confidence in making this confession and taking the refuges, that that confidence has sort of increased as people have you know, gotten used to it and feel more at home with it. And the refuges that we take after this avowal of karma are inspiring. We say, I take refuge in Buddha. And then you know, the doan rings this big bell, right? And we say, before all beings, immersing body and mind deeply in the way, awakening true mind, taking refuge in Dharma, we say, I take refuge in Dharma, we chant it actually, I take refuge in Dharma, before all being, entering deeply the merciful ocean of Buddha's way. That always gets me, right? And then lastly, taking refuge in Sangha, as I said, the community of practitioners and also all beings. We say, I take refuge in Sangha before all beings, bringing harmony to everyone, free from hindrance. So these refuges uh, suggest we can be free, plunging into the merciful ocean, immersing body and mind deeply in the way. And we invoke these vows before all beings, right? Which is the Sangha, as I said, in the wider sense. So that's what kind of gave rise to the thought, I should talk about repentance. Um, It might be helpful to talk about it. Um, In Buddhism, and especially in Zen, and to look at some teachings about karma and repentance. But I want to start with the English word we use, right? Repentance. Because it has some baggage in English, I think. It comes to us through Old French, and it uses the Latin prefix re, uh, plus the Latin and Greek words for punishment by law. Okay, so it really has this heaviness to it. The Latin uh, poina, or punishment, and the Greek poine, which actually means like blood money, a price you pay to compensate a family or an individual right, for like murder or for some other really gravely harmful action where they suffer a loss, right? So blood money or a fine, a penalty, the word penalty comes obviously from the same root, punishment, right? It, it is, you know, pretty, uh, pretty heavy stuff. The deepest roots of these words in the language family that our language of English and Greek and Latin also stem from provides a root that means uh, to pay, to atone, and to compensate, right? So this is like an eye for an eye. That comes from that sort of sense. However, an etymological dictionary that I consulted says about repentance, it says, to repent is to regret so deeply as to change the mind or course of conduct in consequence and develop new mental and spiritual habits. So this is not a Buddhist definition, but a general definition of you know, certain religious ideas around repentance. Right? So again, the linguistic baggage is pretty heavy. It's like you know, steamer trunks rather than your rolling carry-on. Right? But I think that the notion of regret so deep as to change our conduct and our minds is an interesting aspect to repentance in our linguistic heritage of English. And it fits well with our practice, right? We come to practice, all of us, with our own reasons, but we all come wanting change, right? It is not an everyday thing to come and spend time sitting with strangers facing the wall in silence, right? We have a reason, and most of us want change. We want ourselves to change. We want something to change, And it turns out that repentance is a key aspect of this. But what exactly are we repenting or abandoning? Um, Abandoning, you know, our unwholesome uh, karma. And what effects does this repentance have? Where does this idea come from in Buddhism? So a little excursion into repentance and other religions. Some of you probably are familiar with repentance in other practices, uh, so we're not talking about you know legal penalties here, 
talking about religion. I grew up in Catholicism. Uh, it had a sacrament of it has a sacrament of penance. Actually, it was called confession when I was growing up. You confess your sins to a priest in private, and you receive absolution. You're forgiven through the priest, but only if you sincerely repent and don't keep repeating the sinful behavior that you've confessed. Right? And I have to. I I love etymology, so bear with me. As an aside, the word sin. It has interesting roots. It, it's, uh, its root is in the verb to be, as in uh, the offense is true. It exists, and one is guilty. <laughs> That's the origin of sin. Anyway, confession or repentance, you know, in this kind of tradition, Catholicism and other similar traditions, it's not uh, a get-out-of-sin-jail-free card, right? You have to really be sorry and abandon the behavior, right? Don't keep doing it. You must stop doing what you were doing. And there is a penance. There's this penalty, which now is saying some, usually saying some prayers. And then you go forth to sin no more, right? So this sacrament is now called reconciliation. And it emphasizes repair or returning to some kind of wholeness. We acknowledge in these kinds of ceremonies that we have done harm to ourselves and to others, right? So we try to repair the, the damage. And that understanding is reflected in another English word, atonement, which is a relatively new word. It only dates from the 17th century, so only a few hundred years ago. And it literally means at one vent. We pronounce it atonement, but it means to be at one, to be in accord, right? To to be in harmony, right? And it, it, does, it did take on the sense of making reparations, but that's its original meaning, right? To restore. And I like the emphasis in the histories of these words on returning to wholeness and taking responsibility for injury to self and others and doing our best not to keep doing that kind of uh, action. So turning to our Japanese heritage, the heritage of our practice, there is a word in Japanese for repentance. It means repentance. And it's sange, sange. And this refers to a general Buddhist practice. It's not specifically Zen. The practice of sange is actually as old as Indian Buddhism and maybe even pre-Buddhist. And some of you already know, that in the early Buddhist monastic communities, monks would gather, they'd gather twice a month, actually, at the new and the full moon, and they recited the monastic regulations, which got to be very many, like hundreds of regulations, right? And um, so these are, are standards of conduct. They're not so much ethical precepts. They're not ethical guidelines as much as, like, you know, don't have sex, right? Don't, don't touch women, don't handle money, right? Don't eat after noon, don't sleep on high beds, don't listen to music, right? That kind of, right, regulations of conduct. So these regulations were recited, and if any monk had transgressed, they would confess and repent, right? So even here in this early, and this was established by the Buddha, by the way, as a thing to do for his monks, so the setting in this early form of repentance for, for monks is communal, right? So we have that in common. It's a communal setting, and the repentance is open. You would step forward and say, yeah, I blew it on that one, right? And so this is the origin of our full moon ceremony, which, as we announced, we're having on Wednesday evening at 6.45. We do that every month, just once a month, not twice, but once. And the bows, the repentances, and the refuges that I just was talking about that we are doing every morning actually come from this ceremony, right? It's the same wording. We just do this one part of it on a daily basis. So this full moon ceremony, which we sometimes call also the bodhisattva ceremony, is in Japanese called ryaku fusats, right? Not sange. It's called ryaku fusats. Right? And this uh, phrase um, literally means an abbreviated ceremony 
for continuing good practice. Right? So the emphasis in, in our full moon ceremony is not so much the, you know, kind of, it kind of, it's departed from the original monastic confessing your minor transgressions of each thing, but to continue good practice. And the abbreviation is because there's a longer ceremony you can do than that one, which I won't get into. So we do it to renew our vows, to keep the ethical precepts of the Bodhisattva way of Mahayana Buddhism, right? So our practice is aimed at saving all beings, not just ourselves. And when we repent, we return to oneness, right? We don't try to, we only vow, we only vow to keep the 16 bodhisattva precepts. And we're not concerned with the monastic vinaya of hundreds of regulations, right? So the repentances in our form, which is pretty old, I'll talk about the history in a moment, the repentances proceed reciting, or we say, taking the 16 bodhisattva precepts. So repentance for us, or the avowal of karma, prepares us to take and keep, to try to keep the precepts, the ethical precepts. And in the ceremony, we begin with a vowel. We own our karma of body, speech, and mind, right? Yes, thoughts create karma. It's really too bad, right? We think, oh, it's in my head and it's not really doing any harm, but actually it is. This karma has no single point of origin. And as I mentioned at the beginning, it's not even just ours as individuals. It's collective in the sense that when that we are born into a particular time and place, Right? We, have, we are born into various sorts of identities and groups. Um, they're not eternal and unchanging, but they're situational and we all are born into them. We are born into families, even if they're, uh, they don't remain intact. And also we are brought into being by others. So I don't mean that we inherit karma from others in a punitive way, like some kind of literal inheriting of the sins of our forebears in a kind of blood guilt. That's not what I'm talking about. But there may be good or bad karma, what we call trauma, that we carry from one generation to the next. I think you can all think of examples of that either in your own lives or in history. So karma is, as we say, ancient, right? beginningless, It is part of being human. It's not just our individual transgressions, which is sort of a relief, right? It's not just my stuff. Everybody's got it, and everybody's affected by each other's karma. And in our translation, we say it's twisted. And the word, according to uh, Shohaku Okumura, who is a, a Soto priest and translator of Dogen, an interpreter of Dogen, and Buddhism in general, Zen in general, Um, This word, twisted, that we use was originally the word evil. So that's another heavy word, right? Evil tends to put people off. We don't want to think of of ourselves as evil. We don't really want to think of other people as evil, too. We have some, you know, kind of hesitance to say, oh, that person's evil. So we say twisted. Sometimes we talk about knots, right? It's complicated, And our task is to undo the knots or maybe to cut through the knots. Karma is born of beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. These are the three poisonous minds, right? Greed, hate, and delusion that are actually located at the center of the wheel of becoming or of rebirth that keep us returning to samsara in this endless cycle of suffering, the three poisonous minds. So we have our ancient twisted karma and we have greed, right? Body, speech, and mind, right? And stemming from greed, hate, and delusion. Greed is also sometimes translated as craving. Hate is sort of softened by being translated as aversion. And delusion, which is actually a state of ignorance. Right. So when we bring these into the light, we are preparing ourselves for the bodhisattva precepts. This precedes being ready to accept the bodhisattva precepts, which are the practices of a being who vows to save all beings, right? and to save all beings before themselves. 
So the 16 precepts is like a, you know, a huge topic in and of itself. The first three are the three refuges that we just talked about, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Then we have three pure precepts, which are to refrain from evil, to make every effort to live in enlightenment, and to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. So those are the six, first six of the 16. And then we recite the 10 grave precepts, and I won't take the time here to go through all of them, but they begin with not killing, and they end with not disparaging the three treasures. Right? There are 10. And this is the form, the basic form of the full moon ceremony and of other precept ceremonies that people undertake um, when they have sewn a rakasu or an okesa, right? And they take these vows before the sangha to live the bodhisattva path. And some of you have done this or have witnessed this. Okay. So the origin of this ceremony and these precepts and the giving and receiving of them goes back to China as early as the 5th century of the Common Era in China, when Zen was beginning to take form. Right? So it wasn't a feature so much, it wasn't a feature at all of earliest Buddhism. And it goes, our, our actual understanding of what the precepts are and the importance of repentance goes back most directly to the sixth Chinese ancestor, whose name was Huineng. Huineng is this illiterate uh, woodcutter who hears one verse of the Diamond Sutra in the marketplace and says, I got to find out about this. He has some kind of awakening. There's some itinerant monk in the marketplace who's chanting the Diamond Sutra, and he says, oh, that woke something up. I want to know about this. And he goes to this monastery, and he is accepted, but he is basically told, go pound rice in the kitchen because you're really, you know, you're a barbarian from the south, and you're not really fit to study Buddhism. But it, he turns out that he's going to be uh, the next uh, abbot <clears throat> in this particular monastery. Um, we hear all this because we have this source uh, called the Platform Sutra, which is very long, um, and it is a kind of mythologized account of his life and also of his teaching about the precepts. And the platform in the Platform Sutra is a platform on which people take the precepts. They step onto, onto a kind of stage and they receive the precepts, right? So that's what the platform is. Uh, the dates of, of Huineng, by the way, which are mm, maybe a little iffy, but traditionally his dates are 638 to 713 CE. And so this is 500 years before Dogen, right? Just to give you a little fix in time. But we do consider him one of our Sotos and ancestors. So we have several versions of this text of, called the Platform Sutra that recounts his life, Wainung's life, his recognition as the next ancestor by his teacher Hongren, and then his teaching in the form of a sermon or Dharma talk, and then he sets out a, uh, a process or a procedure um, by which you can offer these precepts and his understanding of what they mean. So we owe the full moon ceremony most directly to him. So briefly, his, in his sermon, after noting the karmic conditions and affinities that brought him and his listeners, so that would be, right, all of us, to the place where the sermon was taking place, right? People gathered to find out what he was going to say, and so he took the seat and he gave a talk. He said, here is what I teach, right? He makes the claim that all beings are endowed with Buddha nature or original nature. Right? This is a, a new claim in Buddhism. And that those uh, taking the precepts, interestingly, given you know, this uh, earlier kind of uh, ceremony of confessing and repenting infractions of the monastic code, the people who are taking these bodhisattva precepts were not just monks, but lay people and court officials, and people from all parts of society, men and women. So this was also a kind of radical equality. The precepts are for everyone, and everyone, without exception, has this original, clear nature. And the way to realize this nature, right, which is beyond suffering, 
is through direct unmediated perception of reality, unclouded by our usual delusions. Right, so that is the core of his teaching. And then he conducts this precept ceremony. Right? As I said, this is not a uh, part of the original Indian-based uh, full moon ceremonies, such as was practiced in the Buddhist time. These ceremonies for, with the precepts, the ethical precepts, emerged with Zen in China. They all share, there are variations that we have of this uh, ceremony that we have the most clear expression of with Huineng, but they all share common ritual elements, right? And uh, in one of these uh, earliest versions of the ceremony in the 5th century, it is stated, and this is, so this is where all of this begins, the vast ocean of obstructive karma, does that sound familiar, is entirely caused by deluded thought. Those who wish to repent should sit erect and contemplate ultimate reality. This is the supreme repentance. Right? And it gives rise to this notion that, that uh, Huineng develops and that Dogen adheres to. Right? That sitting practice, sitting zazen, is repentance. It's what's called formless repentance. Right? We don't, it's not confessing particular sins like you know, I touched money, or I forgot to ask you guys to introduce yourselves. It's not rooted in the monastic code of conduct. It's not like going to your partner and saying, you know, I, I forgot to put out the trash, I'm really sorry, right? These are the ethical precepts from the side of non-duality or ethical or absolute reality. That's what Nung was offering people. Dogen expresses this formless repentance of Zazen in this way. Right? that the best way to experience and express the non-dual nature of reality was to sit zazen, right? which is our core practice. This is why. Right? We are repenting when we sit. Dogen considered that the three trainings of Buddhism, which are the precepts, meditation and wisdom, the, the uh, arising of wisdom, all occur simultaneously in zazen practice. And what Dogen said was, when seated in zazen, what precepts are not being observed? What virtues are lacking? Right? So if we're really doing zazen and not sitting there doing something else or creating karma with our thoughts, right? we are completely repenting. Right? But at the same time, nothing is excluded. Right? It's not like if you start thinking, you're lost. Right? Nothing is actually excluded. This inclusivity goes back to Huineng and the Platform Sutra. So he tells this mass, it's apparently a very large crowd in the, uh, in this, in the sutra, that those who have come, he tells those who have come that they can take refuge in the threefold body of Buddha as their own body, right? There isn't somebody called Buddha over here that you take refuge in. You take refuge in yourself, which is Buddha or who is Buddha. So he tells everyone to repeat what he says after him three times, right? So this, this triple rep, uh, repetition is a kind of, you know, ritual reinforcement of the point that he's making. He says, I'm going to make everyone see the threefold body of the Buddha within themselves. And what he has them say is something like, I take refuge in the pure Dharmakaya body as my own corporal bo- corporal." corporal body. I take refuge in the 10,000 hundred billion Nirmanakaya Buddhas in my own corporal body. I take refuge in the future perfect Sambhogakaya Buddha in my own corporal body. Now the three bodies of Buddha, which I just mentioned and which he mentions, are a huge topic with a long history and I won't try to go into that now. But these represent the totality of Buddha nature and in the past, the present, and the future. The widest definition of Buddha. Not a single individual, but basically everything. And then everyone takes four vows in ancient China. right? The four vows that we take are beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is inexhaustible or unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Huineng's 
people in the 8th century say the same thing. So his core teaching is everyone has to save themselves. Everyone can save themselves in their own bodies and with their own natures, within ourselves just as we are. We have originally enlightened nature. And this lays out the meaning of repentance for Hui Nung. And he says this, now I will bestow on you the formless repentances so that you may extinguish your transgressions in the three periods of time and render pure your three types of karmic activity, body, speech, and mind. He says, good friends, you should say the following in unison after me, from our past thoughts to our present thoughts to our future thoughts, so that in every moment of thought we are not subject to the defilement of stupidity. We disciples repent all our transgressions of stupidity, we'll say ignorance, and evil actions from the past. We beseech that our transgressions all be instantly eliminated, never to arise again, from our past thoughts to our present thoughts to our future thoughts, so that in every moment of thought we are not subject to the defilement of deceitfulness. We disciples repent all our transgressions of deceitfulness and evil actions from the past. And it goes on like that, right? Get the idea? We beseech that our transgressions all be instantly eliminated, never to arise again. And he ends by saying that his audience must call Buddha enlightenment. Enlightenment is their master. And they must not rely on other outside teachings that are deluded and heretical. So this is like, you know, join our, join our team, right? We, we have the real, the real deal. But this is important, right, to rely on yourself. They must take refuge in the three treasures of their own bodies. So there's a scholar named Morten Schluter who has been working hard on the Platform Sutra for a long time. And, and this is how he summarizes this part of the ceremony. He says, the precepts of the Platform Sutra are formless because they are not about an older dualistic reality, an outer dualistic reality, but about the self-nature of each of the participants. The ritual of the formless precepts and, the, and formless repentance is therefore a sudden teaching that embodies the highest truth, implicitly vastly superior to any other precept ritual. The very first set of precepts about the three bodies of the Buddha makes it very clear that everyone must save themselves, that the bodies of the Buddha represent an inner reality. The notion of taking refuge in the three bodies of the Buddha within oneself is unique to the Platform Sutra and not found anywhere else. Okay? So we have everything we need, is the point. So this is the deep history of our repentances and refuges. And I want to conclude with Dogen, because that's where we're at. We sometimes chant an extract from a longer essay, and we, what, the title of the thing that we chant, the sutra we chant, is the Ehe Koso Hotsuganman. And this is considered to be the, the vow, the practice vow, of our ancestor, Ehe Dogen, who founded Soto Zen in Japan. Dogen says in this, and it, it echoes, it has this very strong echo for me of Huineng and uh, the Platform Sutra and our precepts. He says, although our past evil karma has greatly accumulated, so Dogen doesn't shy away from evil, although our past evil karma has greatly accumulated, indeed being the cause and condition of obstacles in practicing the way, may all Buddhas and ancestors who have attained the Buddha way be compassionate to us and free us from karmic effects, allowing us to practice the way without hindrance. Right? So at first this sounds like, you know, it's different from what Huineng taught, that, you know, we have to appeal to some other Buddhas somewhere else, right? But Dogen continues, he says, revering Buddhas and ancestors, right, that we, that we know about, these stories that we have, like the story of Huineng, Revering Buddhas and ancestors, we are one Buddha and one ancestor. Awakening Bodhi mind, right, the mind of wisdom. We are one Bodhi mind, right, so that's the non-separation, that's the, the coming together. 
We are not separate from the ancestors at all, but we need to practice to realize it. And a major aspect of this practice is repentance. Dogen says near the end of this sutra, quietly explore the farthest reaches of these causes and conditions. Right? What brought us here? What brought people to Hui Nung's platform? As this practice is the exact transmission of a verified Buddha, confessing and repenting in this way, one never fails to receive profound help from all Buddhas and ancestors. Right? By revealing and disclosing our lack of faith and practice before the Buddha, we melt away the root of transgressions by the power of our confession and repentance. Right? So this is the part about truly abandoning whatever it is that we need to let go of. Right? We melt away the root. Otherwise, we're just cutting the grass. Right? It comes back up. Right? We need to get to the root. So we do that by the power of our confession and repentance. And the last line is, this is the pure and simple color of true practice, of the true mind of faith, of the true body of faith. Right? The body of faith, we are Buddha. We are already enlightened. We just don't know it. So this confessing and repenting here is a vowel, and I think the so-called formless repentance of zazen, of our core practice, out of which everything else comes. When we sit zazen, we give up doing. And this is why it is called formless repentance, right? We take all forms and no form. And the formless repentance of just sitting is also renunciation which Dogen also talks about, right? Renouncing worldly affairs is just taking the backward step, right? That turns around our light inwardly. It's refraining from creating more suffering. What is our lack of faith and practice? It's when we forget, right? When we lose our way. The root of our transgressions, our unwholesome karma, is our ignorance. And we melt this root of this lack of faith by practice itself. Thank you very much. Okay. Questions? Mm, Jose. Um, I like that word twisted because uh, to me uh, it drew parallel to Indra's net. Yeah. Where uh, Indra's net sounds beautiful and shiny and we're all reflected in each other and, and uh, it's wonderful. But then uh, the ancient twisted flip side to that picture is that we all also harm and... Uh, Influence each other as well, and uh, that kind of flows through all of us in a way as well. Uh, is that parallel justified? I think the sense that, uh, in the sense that, if you think about Indra's net as this complete interconnectedness of everything, and everything reflecting and connected with everything else, no matter how far away, how, yeah, I mean, no matter what we think about distance, or that's not really, you know, relevant then, yeah, everything we do, everything that is the product of deliberate action on our part potentially affects everything else right? in large or small ways, and it's really hard to tell. I mean, you probably know about... Uh, sometimes we hear about the effects of things that we do, good or bad, you know, much later, and someone says you know, to you, you, you said this thing or you did this thing, it really hurt, you know, and you find out many, many years later, you don't really know how it affected them. Or something that benefited another person, right? Um, sometimes you see things happen out, out there and you can see how things are connected, like a good deed, you know, something, something kind and compassionate that has a huge effect can change people's lives, right? You just don't know. So it's one reason why we try to be careful. Right? And then you know, accept that we're human beings. And this is something that I, I, I didn't want this to get too long, but Wei Nung says, just as you are, with all of your, you know, problems and faults and false consciousnesses, and, you know, you still have the Buddha nature. It's there, right? It, nothing is pushed, nothing is excluded, right? But we can see those things for what they are, the so-called faults and, and uh, you know, impurities, and, and not be pushed around by them. Thank you. No question. Uh, yeah, Jess. Um, 
So, so the concept, the words, and thus the concepts of good and bad are some of these things that get really sticky for me. They're, they, they become a little bit loaded. Um, so when we use, when you're using the word good and bad in relation to karma, um, what are ways that we could think about what that means? So karma in and of itself is not good or bad. It's just, you know, kind of, uh, it's an outcome. And um, this is on the, the side of the absolute, right? Beyond judgment. It's beyond what we think about good or bad. But by the same token, right, we can see things that are beneficial or helpful or come from compassion, you know, and those things we say are good, right, or positive, right? Um, so it's something like that. We, we, I mean, the, the thing about the, the, this harmony of the, the relative and the absolute, right, we live in the relative world where I say something and it hurts you, right, or I do something I, and it, it, it has what we consider to be a bad outcome. Someone is hurt, something is hurt. Um, there's harm, what we call harm. When we pull back and look in from a very, very wide perspective, you know, it's just the result of action. And we, we put these labels on it, which is not to say that you know harm doesn't exist. In the, there's there's this interplay which is very difficult to talk about, right? So there, it's beyond our judgment, but by the same token, in the in the world in which we live and in our engagement with beings, right? Things have consequences that are we say are maybe not positive. Mm-hmm. I think, like for me, the word harm is way more tangible than the word bad. Yeah. For example, because then I'm like, oh, I, because bad becomes so subjective. Well, one thing about that, you know, when we say bad, right, or you feel bad and you feel guilty, right? Yeah. You don't hear about guilt in Buddhism so much, but when we feel guilty, we have this sense of, oh, I really wish I hadn't done that. And then you start to see, oh, I do that all the time, right? Then maybe that's the turning where you are ready to say, I'm going to own this. Right? This is a habit of mine. It has some origin that I don't even maybe understand. Or I think I understand, but it doesn't really matter. It's become, a, it's become part of me. So I'm going to try to put this down. I'm going to become conscious of it, and I'm going to try to change. But the change really comes from the sense of wanting to be not harmful, wanting to be whole, wanting to act as if everything you do matters, because it does, right? And everything affects you and and everything else. So how does a how does a being that sees that act? And this is where we get the notion that the precepts are the mind of Buddha. This is how a Buddha behaves. If if when you re, when you see reality, this is just how you are, right? It's it's not like I have to adhere to this code of conduct. You know, I'm I'm restraining myself from going out and committing all kinds of mayhem. Right? It's more like, no, this is, this is natural. It's, this is the natural consequence of, of seeing reality. Yeah. Eric? Thank you for your talk, Chara. Um, I wanted to ask you if you could just uh, speak a little bit about um, a vowel and uh, kind of practically what that kind of looks like. Well... I think for me, it just, it means, you know, to accept the karma of what I do think and say, and to try to be conscious of what I do think and say, knowing that, you know, my, my deliberate activity and the way I express myself or the way I am in the world has consequences, that it has effects. So a vowel, um, is, you know, to, as I said, to kind of own it. Like, yeah, sometimes I don't think before I speak, and that can be hurtful. Or, you know, I act uh, quickly without, you know, considering the consequences. So it's, it's more of a, a kind of, um, what's the best word for this other than um, accepting or owning? Something like... Um, bringing it out into the light and not just sort of like pushing it away. Sometimes, you know, out of a sense of guilt or shame, we don't want to look at certain things. 
we know we, we know that you know that's part of us, but we're like ah, you know. So, it's not turning away from yourself. Yeah, not turning away from yourself, even the things that you find the, the, the hardest to accept, that you that you want to reach, you want to get rid of. <laughs> I'd like to get rid of this. The way to get rid of it is actually to face it and not get rid of it, but to kind of uh, incorporate it, integrate it. That's the word I'm looking for, integrate it. Sometimes uh, I've heard questions, this has not been asked of me, but I've heard questions like, well, you know, sometimes teachers do great harm. So how can a person who is a teacher and who has, you know, talking like I'm talking, do this thing, right? They, and they seem to be, to have so many gifts to offer, right? That they, they are wonderful shining examples of practice and then they do some terrible thing, right? And the, the prime example of this in, you know, the Suzuki Roshi lineage is uh, Baker Roshi, his successor, who, you know, transgressed in a number of ways and ultimately, you know, left, had to leave. And it, it destroyed the community at the time. And this is repeated over and over again all throughout Buddhism, right? It's like it's a thing in many lineages and many types of Buddhism. And the, the best answer I ever heard was people can be really highly realized and really, you know, very uh, cognizant of the teachings and practice them, and, but if, they're, if they haven't fully integrated them, then there's trouble. And fully integrating it is being a Buddha, right? Even the Buddha got mad, apparently. He occasionally lost his temper. But, you know, I'm not talking about just losing your temper. Um, I just heard stories about Suzuki Roshi and what an absolutely terrible father he was back home in Japan. He was really, really very strict with his sons. He would throw them into the temple pond when he was angry, right? You know, he had a temper. <laughs> yeah, he had a temper. And and yet, you know, he was a wonderful teacher who did this amazing thing in, in America. But to me, you know, he hadn't fully integrated all aspects of himself and over time, maybe he did, but he also caused great, a great deal of uh, sadness back home because he left his home temple and he never went back. He left his family and his congregation. It's a 500-year-old temple, right? And he walked away and he came to him and he stayed in America to follow, you know, the path that he decided he was on here. So even Suzuki Roshi, right, whom we revere, was a human being with flaws. And his transgressions were not the ones that, you know, Richard Baker or other teachers we could name or not, right, or other people, right? So we're all Buddha, and we all have these problems. And some of us have really big responsibility that more than, you know, uh, more than some others to try to remain upright. Yeah. Sitting Zazen's good. <laughs> Tell you. Other thoughts? Question? Yes. Um, in this I know how to save them is the phrase being beings are numberless. In the word being, does that include trees? I think it does. Um, some some uh, expressions of this teaching is that you know even the insentient is right. So sometimes we say sentient beings, things that have some form of consciousness or things that are alive, just alive. But there is a teaching that everything is preaching the Dharma all the time: rocks and pebbles and tiles and walls, right? Which is the most radical expression of of absolute reality. There is no, there is no distinction. Hui Nung also says in the Platform Sutra, and this really helped me a lot uh, because I struggled like many of us do and I still do with the, you know, how do you save all beings? It's impossible, right? You could just see it as a, a, an endless vow that we just stay with lifetime after lifetime. It's the Bodhisattva vow. We never, we never accomplish it. But the other thing, and again, Hui Nung 
uh, said this, save all the beings in your mind. <laughs> right? Because in the end, from the view, point of view of the absolute, there are no other beings. Right? What beings are there <laughs> to save? There are no, uh, you all out there are not other beings. Right? There are no other Buddhas. They're all here. Right? Right here. So, there, but that isn't very helpful because we live in the everyday, right? But saving them in your mind, you could sit with that one. Pat. Uh, I once heard a definition of saving all beings that really resonated with me and helped me. That was that really saving all beings is to say accepting all beings. Accepting all beings, yeah. You can invite them into, onto the cushion with you these beings you carry around in your mind, the ones that you think are good and the ones you think are bad and the ones that you think are friendly and the ones you like and you don't like, save all of them, right? So that's a transformational kind of uh, practice, right? That breaks down these barriers of self and other. And it's a way of seeing reality directly, experiencing reality directly. There are no other beings actually easier to accept all trees. Some of the the people that I know who have the the hardest time dealing with other people are the greatest animal lovers, right? Because the love that they have and the compassion they have finds its outlet. But often animals or trees or plants or something like that are much easier. They don't, there's no judgment, right? So, and they, and they accept your, well, even if they bark at you, right? Still, you're like, oh, there, that's okay. Yeah, the people are, people are the, the hard cases. Especially when they bark. Especially when they bark. <laughs> yes. But climate change is another message that we are getting from the trees. Yeah. Climate change. This is the, this is the, the very difficult problem of our time of how, what is our appropriate response to that you know from from the side of the absolute it is the nat- it's the con- it's the natural consequences of our actions and also various processes over which we don't have any real control but we add to the causes and conditions and it's neither good nor bad right and if you look at the fossil record whole worlds have come and gone for millions and billions of years that's not very comforting but it's the, it's true right but here we are right now what is the what is compassionate and what is appropriate, right? What alleviates suffering? Yeah, thank you. Anybody out? And I can't see everyone in the foyer. Hello. I'm doing. Thank you. Yes, I'm. I I actually cleared my sinuses with a great roar the other day. I suddenly could. I suddenly could hear. <laughs> I've not been able to hear very well, but thank you. I am feeling better. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? Okay. Among my uh, other uh, transgressions was to forget that for those of us in the practice period, we do have a gathering today.